What's up, everyone, and welcome back to another weekly episode of the Inking Out Loud podcast. I am your host, Rob Santos, and I am joined, as I always am, of course, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? Today, Drew and I are delving into another work by Alex E. Harrow, whose short story, Mr. Death, had us raving for our Patreons, or sorry, I should say our patrons on Patreon in our March exclusive episode. And speaking of our patrons, for those who want access to our episodes early, or if you want the chance for Drew or I to, uh, to read a book that you suggest for us in the future, do check us out on Patreon or our profile on Coffee. that's K-O-F-I. I had a rather interesting experience reading this book and i understand that drew you have some select thoughts for us today too we have been waiting for about three weeks and change to record <laughs> this episode so let's just get started drew would you recap the Ten Thousand doors of january for us yeah you're right it has been a a, a little while we had jordan con in there we had some just general life things yeah, we had scheduling conflicts and... exams appointments that kind of stuff yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> but uh but i actually i kind of appreciated having a little bit of extra time with this book because I feel like this book is one that you you don't want to rush. Um, though, amusingly, I have a rather short summary for it. The 10,000 <laughs> Doors of January is the story of young January scholar, a rather special girl who lives a life of privilege in Vermont in the early 1900s. Her father, Julian, works for the wealthy Mr. Locke, traveling across the world to find rare artifacts for Locke's New England Archaeological Society. But when Julian goes missing, January's world changes forever. She finds a special book called The Ten Thousand Doors, which tells the story of how her father came from another world and met her mother, along the way discovering a nefarious plot to close the magical doors connecting worlds. After Locke puts January in an asylum, she breaks free with some help from her, her friend Samuel and her old guardian Jane. They defeat the vampire Havemeyer before fleeing to the world of Arcadia, but their solace there is short-lived. Ilvane, another member of the society, follows them and badly wounds Jane before closing the door back to Earth. January reopens the door with her magic and goes off by herself, hoping to find and reopen another door, this one leading to her father's world. There she finds and faces down Mr. Locke, leaving him to his destruction in the void of the threshold. She continues on to the city of Nin, where she finally meets her mother, Adelaide. Together, they wait for Julian. After being reunited with her parents, January makes it her mission to combat the society, exploring across the worlds and reopening the doors they've closed. Okay. <laughs> well, jumping straight into style, I will say I, I, I felt the book had a strong start. I was immediately intrigued by this first line. When I was seven, I found a door. And this is yeah. a, a talent of Harrow's that we, we talked about in our, in previously when, when we read Mr. Death. You know, she has a gorgeous voice. Um, Harrow has this lyrical, she has the rhythmic prose. She has introspective, aesthetically observant prose as well. Uh, moments where she calls attention to the words themselves, like a door. There it stands, tall and proud. Or sometimes I feel there are doors lurking in the creases of every sentence with periods for knobs. You know, there is this choice, this deliberate choice to focus on doors as a theme. And it's it's interesting. There's a lot to unpack there. And Harold's not afraid to demonstrate that. Um, on, on paper, for lack of a better term, her writing, I feel, on a technical level is fantastic. Yes. But yeah. it's the only thing I enjoyed about this book. So I... I would say 
overall, I enjoyed this book a great deal. I think the plot was unremarkable. Mm -hmm. The characters largely were unremarkable. But the beauty of her writing was just spectacular. Uh, You know, this is a fairly standard story of love and loss and finding home, a Bildungsroman, you know, a a coming of Mm -hmm. age story for a young girl. Um, We have fairly archetypal characters. Fairly archetypal Um, characters. But but my goodness, and this is the reason why I'm kind of glad we had more time with the book, because I wanted to read this slowly. I wanted to savor the words. I wanted to savor the word choice. You know, the the feel of care that went into each sentence. I mm-hmm. uh, I was not let down. The things that I loved about um, the language in her short fiction carries yeah. over. Yeah, uh, to it fulfilled that promise to her her novel length work here, um, and as as Polanski's did as well. Yeah, yeah. Although I enjoyed the story in this one more than I enjoyed the story in Lowtown. You know, um, I think I still agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, sorry, I had to kind of pop away. I had uh, some sound issues, but the, uh, the the two things that really stand out to me about her prose, uh, the way she tells her story in this book specifically. Uh, one thing you noted, you know, this introspection, this sense of interiority, where even when she's describing the things outside of January, it's reflecting back on January. How do these things make her feel? You know, there's always a like a tactile sense of the world around her. So you get the the effect of January herself being immersed in the world. And that helps the reader get immersed in the story. And this is one thing in particular that I struggle with a great deal in my writing. I think I need to work on this a lot. Oh. Um, it is immersing the reader in the world. I think I have a pretty good grasp on, you know, things like pacing and 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 dialogue and action and things like that. But but I I have gotten feedback uh, from several readers on All Flames cast that they want to feel more immersed in the world and, and things like that. Um, so that's something that I, when I find it in writing, uh, in other authors writing, it always stands out to me and I appreciate Mm. it because it's one of those things that I don't think I do very well. Uh, And I, I hope to learn some lessons here. And one of the, one of the ways that stands out the most in this book is I don't think I've ever read a book with such a focus on the sense of smell. (laughs) Okay. Interesting. I didn't notice her con- her consistently noticing smell over other things, but you did. Oh yeah, I wasn't paying constant, attention closely enough. Constant ah. references to smell. The number of times we got um, worlds described through the smell coming in through the door. Mm. You know, uh, the number of times she she fell asleep with the smell of bad, the the golden fur of bad. Uh, it, it was just all over the place. Makes me want to do a search in book, except that I did audiobook for this one again. So I mean, I I had uh, many uh, many things highlighted um, uh, when when we introduce uh, when we introduce bad. 
Bad curled around my back, even though it was too hot for cuddling, making soft, puppyish sounds deep in his chest. He smelled of summer and fresh clipped grass. You know, uh, it feels like every time a character is introduced, there's a a smell. Uh, Even chapter one. Um, If I'd been older, I might have said... It smelled of salt and age and adventure. This is describing the city when she goes through the door yeah, in chapter yeah. one. I remember that it, one. It smelled like another world. And I want to return right this minute and walk those strange streets. You know, there's there's such a focus on smell. And I, I kind of love it. Hmm. Smell is one that is often, I've, I have found, has been overlooked. And I have found in my writing that I almost never write what something smells like. Like, literally never yeah. write that down. So this is this is also offering a lot of potential for just introspection as a reader and as a hopeful writer someday. Um, that is something that I'm going to be taking. I hadn't even noticed that. But we've already covered enough nine minutes into this episode for, for me to want to go into it again and want to read it at a slower pace because... I'm fairly certain I, I breeze past a lot of what other people will point out as the brilliance in this novel. And there is some brilliance in this novel that even I can point out. But overall, the novel for me was not exciting and it was uh, not remarkable because of just I, I wasn't really connecting with our main character. And I felt like a lot of our conflicts were a little contrived and, and our characters are especially our antagonists were a little one dimensional. But we're still on nitpicking style things here. Did you notice an overabundance of the word temerarious. Uh, yeah, she definitely likes that word. <laughs> she really likes that word, doesn't she? Yeah, I but I think it right made away. sense, you know, like for the character because well, it was at the a time. word that yeah. it was a word that January herself that latched young onto. January, young yeah. January was kind of latched. Yeah, she did latch onto it, and there was this really entertaining line about her not knowing what temerarious means, but she mm-hmm. assuming it's nothing good based on the company that that word keeps. And I thought, again, that's one of those moments that as a technical writer as a wordsmith harrow nailed that line i actually laughed out loud there but temerarious as a for a reader just sticks out as a word and when you get it four times in the space of less than half of a book this size it's like oh i don't know she's really really into this one but you're right it it did it wasn't really lingering with adult january that she had more pressing matters at the time so that was cool but i was already so geared and paying attention to it at that point so i think Mm -hmm. it was maybe one or two too many times even then but um, any other style nitpicky things or should we just go into like the plot overall and the characters overall so yeah I have one more thing uh, heck and, yes oh I have more style things too I'm just talking I nitpicky mean, go ahead. Uh, I guess not necessarily nitpicky but before we go into st- uh, plot and characters um, I want to like point out what this book is and that it it's not a really it's not a book, like I said, that stands out for its plot and characters. It's vibes. This is a book about vibes. <laughs> this is a good. This know? is a book about vibes. I like that. It's like, yeah, the characters, of course, are important. It's it's the story of January. It's the story of January finding home, finding family, finding love. But home, family, love are like more important than like as themes than they are about that. Then is like January as a human being. You know, like. She's just not really that interesting overall. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like with our with our plot, I felt a lot of it just felt a little synthetic, forced, I would say at times. There's just a I found there's a mashing together of pieces. And this is all all of my complaints going forward are going to be subjective. I will not say that this is a bad book. 
there's just a lot that I don't think I appreciated in this book. I was just like, yeah, there's, there's something I'm missing. Um, and I'm not going to lie. My initial note halfway through chapter one was a little bit of a roast. I'll read it for you. I just wrote, this feels contrived. Everybody is oppressing January. Oh, surprise. She wants to travel a lot as a young one to explore, but she doesn't understand much of what's going on around her. Oh, and the adults who are primarily men are constantly shutting down her dreams, telling her, especially Locke, to mind her place, calling her an item, exhibiting her, calling her a thing in Havemeyer's case. I'm just like, ah, this is, this is starting to feel a little contrived. There's a, there's a point here that's being made and it's not really subtle. And then I also wrote, let me guess, the literal first boy she meets is going to be our primary love interest, isn't he? And it won't be Samuel. As soon as I read him, I was like, oh, he's the boy from home, though. She knew him already. He's going to fall for her and then die in a heroic sacrifice play. And then she's going to have to meet a larger than life magic boy or a super adorably dorky princeling. I thought it was going there. It wasn't going there. So I'm glad about that. Uh, yeah. I am glad also that she ended up recognizing Samuel, not that she needed to, but that she naturally found her way towards Samuel and accepting his um, his declaration that he didn't really make. So I, I did like where that went, but I was there was a lot of it that I felt just wasn't subtle. A lot of, mm, I don't know. Yeah, and I don't think this that that it was ever trying to be subtle. Like uh, one of the one of Granted, the vibes sure. for the okay. book is that this feels like a fairy tale. And fairy tales tend to be very straightforward with a particular moral or or theme or you know point to it, and I think it was successful in that. Like this is this is an extraordinarily accessible book. Um, it's not a difficult read. Uh, it's You're right. it is the kind of thing. Like I'm not going to say this is a young adult book. But it absolutely can be read as a young adult. Book. I think I would, I would call it. Like you're right. Actually, now that I think on it, the Dark Lord of Durkholm was itself no nothing like a subtle book, and I loved that one. So a book doesn't mm-hmm. need to be subtle. I'm I'm also just generally not one for the whole. Lots happens, but ultimately the story is about love and searching for meaning. Kind of vibe to use your uh, <laughs> word there. Like this in world ten thousand doors of January book turning out to be a love story disguised as a reflection on boundaries and separation and doors as a theme that kind of felt a little flat or felt fell a little flat for me. I don't mind a love story. I just appreciate it myself as part of a story rather than that, which carries everything else, which is kind of how I felt about this one. Again, subjective um, Julian or Yulene's obsession with doors and other worlds and exploring was ultimately him being lovesick or, or my over simplifying that hmm. okay the, the vast yeah, majority of I, january's I, conflict is about being abandoned right like i there's just the only like i don't know am i oversimplifying it i feel like i may be i don't think you're necessarily oversimplifying it i i don't necessarily have the same aversions to these types of things that it seems okay. you do yeah, I just, I didn't really connect. This didn't give me a lot of reason to connect with the character. And I don't really feel like I needed, like I was supposed to. I just feel like this book was written for an audience of which I am not a part. So like, that's why my complaints are just subjective ones. Yeah, that, that could be. But I mean, yeah. like this is, this is again, one of the, one of the reasons that I'm glad we read books like this on Inking Out Loud, that we're reading a variety. Because especially as writers, if you only ever read the same kinds of books, it's going to be hard to grow as a writer. It's going to be hard to learn how to tell stories more effectively because you're only going to know how to tell stories in one way, you know? And, mm. and like, so reading something like this or reading something like, um, 
a memory called Empire or reading something like the Dresden Files. You know, these are all all series or, or stories that the authors go about telling in dramatically different ways from the, uh, I hesitate to say standard, but it really has become a, a fairly standard, you know, mode of storytelling in the last 20, 25 years of fantasy. You know, the, the Wheel of Time, third person limited cast of characters, you know, um, even in this one, we we have a, a play on point of view. We we have tense shifts. Uh, we have scenes where um, she even slips a little bit into uh, like addressing the reader directly um, at the very end. We have present tense when we get the scene at the end with Samuel. Mm, you yeah. know, uh, it's not all just like by the books, third person, close, limited, past tense, you know? Yeah. Or um, she can, and, yeah. and the stories are about different things. It's not, it's not another story of a, you know, a prophesied hero taking on a, an evil overlord. It's not a story of cataclysmic war, or, you know? It, and so for me, what I appreciate about this is that this is this type of story if I'm writing an epic fantasy, this type of story is is the building block. You know, this is the the foundation piece that you build your epic world and conflict on top of. If you can learn how to write a a powerful story about characters and their motivations, and then fill out on top of that, it becomes a much richer yeah. experience for the reader. And like, that's not to say that you can't write an entertaining story that doesn't spend a whole lot of time worrying about themes of love and home and, and escape and loss and change, but it, it helps, you know? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I do need to do another reread and I will be doing another reread despite the fact that this book didn't really land for me. Um, there's, there's clearly a lot that I'm just, you know, I, that I have yet to, to uncover on my own. So I definitely see the reread value in it. Yeah. Like it's, I don't know. It's a, a, so much in this book are the things that I'm still learning how to apply to my own writing that I absolutely am going to want to reread this and, and maybe not even just sitting down and rereading it cover to cover, but rereading specific scenes, specific moments that stood out to me as things that I would like to do. I, I there are already a couple of scenes that I have highlighted here that uh, I want to have fresh in my mind and really dig into when I go back to revise the short story I wrote for our uh, Patreon or our ah. Discord uh, prompt in March because I think the vibe of that story in my mind that I'm going for is very similar to the vibe here. The theme in that story is about escape and and about finding purpose in the world. Uh, you know, it, it, it starts off with a young girl who's like trapped in a tower serving an older man who has like his own plans and, and his own designs for her life, you know? Um, and, and I had no idea. I wrote that story back in March before I even picked up the 10,000 doors of January yeah. and started reading it. So this was a little, you know, a little bit, uh, serendipitous, uh, that I have this book fresh in my mind as I'm going to 
revise the Aquamancer's gem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've gone through all of my style points. Have you anything else left to say style-oriented? Uh, I have some thematic things that I want to talk about. Throw them at me. Um, going back to the idea of this as sort of a fairy tale, mm-hmm. um, there are two main themes that stand out to me. Uh, one of them is, of course, the idea that January can take her wishes and manifest them. and literally manifest them. Yeah. Um, and of course, this is where I think the the story feels the most like a, a young adult or even a middle grade story. Um, it's it's this idea that cultures all over the world encourage in children to believe in their dreams, believe that they can affect change upon the world, believe that they can achieve things and not to feel like they're limited, that, that you should strive to achieve things. Um, and, and of course people in real life don't have magical ability to affect that change, but, but it reading stories like this inspires um, and then, and then, of course, there's the other side of the change coin, and that is the idea that doors are symbols of change. And mm. I want to, I want to, like, how did you feel about that idea? Where, like, I this... like the idea. Yeah. So, yeah, this idea is, is is I like how it was a consistent theme, and it was a consistent theme literally from the first line, and it we also ended on a very similar theme. I do like that it was a consistent theme, and it was it was it was done with justice. I hadn't re- it is original um, using doors to represent change, like you had just said, or just reflecting on what boundaries are and and what really counts as a boundary when you have something like human connection across them, exploring all of this territory from the point of view of a girl coming of age. There's so much literary potential there. Harrow, Harrow set out to do a job here and it feels like she absolutely did nail it. I did. I like the, the doors as a theme. So that was a, a definite thumbs up from me. And again, I did like how she even got introspection, introspective or even, aesthetically observant about using the word door that was a really cool touch and that's something that i i don't see a lot of authors daring to do to challenge the reader to to reflect on the shape of words to watch to look at the periods at the end of the sentence that's because that's that's daring that takes proverbial literary balls to intentionally (laughs) remove your reader from the page and observe what they're actually reading without risking too much or at least you know deciding to risk you know, disconnect yeah. there. It's yeah. it, it's a really precarious balance. I feel. Uh, I actually had a note about this, uh, and and also calling out the number of times she describes the shape of letters. Mm. You know, there and, it stands tall and proud. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, like the sea, how the the arms of the sea and and yeah. circle, and uh, I think that's when she's Jane uses the word companion and and January thinks about the sea and how companion is capitalized in the way Jane speaks it. And it evokes companion in the epic fantasy sense of like the fellowship of the ring are companions off on a quest, you know, to save the world or, or you're facing down a dragon together or something like that. And, and how the shape of that capital C encompasses the meaning uh, or I, I know there was one point where she talks about an F unfurling like a blossom. Yeah, yeah. This, this 
reminds me a lot of uh, I, I didn't read the entire I, I didn't read an entire book of his, but this reminds me of a of a book from the fifties that I had read from a controversial author named Vladimir Nabokov. The book is Lolita. Oh yeah, yeah. And and the very beginning, you know, the introduction to his character, he's explaining how the how the mouth forms the word and the sounds Lolita and how the tongue takes these tips this this trip down the back or the the, the roof of the mouth and to end on the t. It's it's a very very like. Yeah, it definitely reminds me of some of the greatest writing that I have read in terms of the aesthetic. Although I never finished that book. That was a 12th grade book that I did for a writer's craft class. But it's still, it, even all these years later, which would be what, 12, 13 years later, even that that first page sticks with me. And this one, you know, when I was seven, I found a door. The, even, this will stick with me for a while too. I feel like I'll be hearkening back to this even 10 years from now. So, Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um yeah, so going back to the this theme of doors and the idea of doors. Yes, yeah, yeah, I got off track there. Go ahead. Uh, this was like I appreciated the idea of it, but this is one of the few things that I I felt the book was a little bit lacking in execution. Um, I I felt she overstated it. Um, she kept talking about doors as as revolution, and. Mm, and we yeah, get like okay. we get a couple of examples, you know, like where there's this woman in India who goes through a door, disappears for ten days, and comes back and says she saw an oracle on that who told her that the uh, the people of India would be free from British rule, and that spawns a you know a, a rebellion a ah, revolt that law ah, has to put down. Um, yeah, I was never convinced by this idea. Like I, I like the idea that doors are change. You know, we, this is something I think humans in general inherently understand. There's, yeah. uh, there's a reason why people are attracted to the idea of liminal spaces, that there's an unease to it. Um, you know, like there are whole subreddits dedicated to like people just taking pictures of liminal spaces, doorways, hallways, corners, you know, that like it just feels kind of weird to look at. Them. Oh my God. Really? I have to check this yeah. out when we're done. Um, and, and so that side of it, I was like, yes, you know, this, this is a powerful idea to be writing around. But when she, when she repeated the idea of doors being revolution, I was never convinced by it in the story. And, and that's one, one area where I'm like, I'm glad the story was, you know, whatever, 370 pages. Uh, it didn't need to be a monstrously thick tome or anything, but I wish she had spent more time showing us rather than telling us that doors are revolution. Specifically about the revolution. Yeah. Like we have Aspen. enough. We have enough opportunities, boundaries and connection or breaking thereof. Yeah. Yeah. Like we have enough opportunities, enough interactions with doors in this that we could see revolution happen. And it doesn't even need to be happening on earth because obviously she's restricted by the bounds of history where she is telling this as ostensibly a, a real story, you know, but we see other worlds and we don't really see like how many times the doors on on the written are used, but we don't ever see revolution happen on the written. It's very self-contained. It's it's very 
focused on Adelaide and and focused on Yule Ian. Hmm. Um, it, it's like revolution only happens on Earth in these. Uh, you you could maybe make an argument about Arcadia, but that's like, meh, like like I have a hard time saying that like repopulating a world yeah. is a revolution. <laughs> it's yeah. just like, um, so. So yeah, that that was kind of my one my one big gripe with the book on a thematic level. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Um I'm ready to get into characters. How about you? Okay. Else to... Yeah. Yeah. Uh no, actually, you know what? No. I have one last note. Um The Ten Thousand Doors. Mm-hmm. The door written by Yule Ian Scholar. The introduction mm-hmm. to it. Uh, being a comparative study of passages, portals, and entryways in world mythology. This text was produced by Yule Ian Scholar for the University of the City of Nin, etc., etc. And, and it has this extremely formal academic voice. Which... Yes made me laugh but i also appreciated it because i yeah i was an english major you know i had to do this many times uh yeah but then you know he goes through this this introduction and he notes off points and he starts bringing in footnotes and and then the evidence supporting theories one through four has been divided into 18 subcategories presented below as at least that is the book I intended to write when I was young and arrogant. And I, I actually chuckled out loud because I could just feel the, the sort of exhalation, the stylistic exhalation on the part of Harrow where like she felt, I, I almost guarantee she felt restricted and confined while writing that introduction. And then when she got to go back to writing her usual style it was like a breath of fresh air (laughs) interesting i had actually and i will admit that i had completely forgot about that intro yeah yeah. (laughs) that's very good and that's interesting because i finished like we said we had three we had three weeks with this book i finished it on audiobook and i went through bands of mourning and i sorry drew i went through almost the entirety of the wormling horde by now as well and oh wow i I was like what else do i have to read i'll I'll read Ten Thousand doors again i'll just do it again maybe i missed something i I think i got like three hours through before i had to start training other people and got distracted at work and other stuff again but again so i actually read the intro of this book twice and i still I, it might have been the fact that it was audiobook and that it was uh, maybe the narrator didn't really change her tone of voice at all for that part of it, but I hadn't really picked up on that. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that, Which is I interesting. Think that is my last main style point. I had actually meant, I had read it, written down a note and I totally forgot to investigate just how it is it came to be that this book is called The 10,000 Doors of January and it is narrated by a woman whose name is January. Yes. I didn't. I, I. I never actually looked into that. I had meant to. Do you? Do you say yes as if you have, as if you know what, uh, what, what that connection could be. No, no, just, just agreeing with you, pointing that out. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'll look it up on silently on my phone before we finish the episode. But I'll still continue with our characters. We should just get yeah. into January. Yeah. Let's talk talking about January. About January. Um, so you can, as, after my pseudo diatribe earlier, anyone listening, you could probably make a good guess as to just how much common ground I found that I have with our main character, or how much connection I felt to her, or investment to her journey. Which is to say, none. 
And mm-hmm. that's fine. I mean, I won't use that to say this book is not a good book. I'd even accept that this book is amazing. If, if someone made the argument to me and Drew was making a damn good case for it, I simply just don't have the life experience to properly invest in a character who spends all her time being exhibited or owned or oppressed or misunderstood. Uh, this entire book taking place from January's point of view or the, the, the passages from the in-world book itself that I felt was kind of delaying the, the plot until I realized, oh, okay, there's a lot more involved here. A lot of that just, it, it's just not my tempo. It's just not my tempo. Um, and Harrow, I found also made January, in my opinion, and frustratingly dense at times for what I can, what I can discern is no other purpose than to pace out the plot, I felt like. Um, there's this moment where it's like, oh, my father is missing and Locke says that he's likely dead. Well, damn. I mean, I guess Locke is always honest, isn't he? I'm, dad is just surely gone. And I'm kind of shaking my head going, are we, we going to really save this for like some sort of revelation that he's alive? Because everybody knows that he's still alive, right? And then January later learns from the book how Adelaide never made it back. Like, well, I guess she's dead too. Time to start shopping funeral services. You know, there are these moments where she just immediately buys something that any, I feel like, even a sheltered person would would be wise enough to question. And it just it ends up, of course, going exactly where the plot needs it to go. I mean, even when she's when she's I just had another uh, a thought that came to me when she's forced into the asylum and she's constantly thinking to herself, well, this isn't right. I'm not crazy. I can't afford to let them think I'm crazy. And then she proceeds to act as insane as humanly possible at every opportunity. She's lunging for the book, which is obviously going to be contraband. She's growing violent and she's screaming and fighting for it. I was just, I was tired of January halfway through this book. And I don't know. I never found a a big connection with her. Hmm. Interesting. I did not have those issues with her. No? Um, Largely because like she's, she's young. She's not, she's not trained to think critically about these things. In fact, she's trained specifically to be as uncritical as possible. And in fact, as we see by the end of the book, magically coerced to be as uncritical as possible. And, you know, um, but in in the in the asylum, she's going in there thinking, well, this isn't right. I'm not crazy. So the last thing I can't afford to let them think I'm crazy, you know, and yeah, but she's she has self-awareness of that. She she has just had a magic worked upon her by Mr. Locke who tells her in that like serious mind control, like your father is dead. You need to do X, Y, Z. Oh, I had forgotten about it. his mind control. Okay. So yeah. the, I'll, I'll give the pass um, for the father so being missing she, and her believing it right away. She is emotionally distraught. Like everything no that, everything in her life that she has thought of as a constant, as a bedrock has been taken away from her, her father, her dog, her guardian, and Mr. Locke. Um, so she's floating. Like I, I in no way blame her for having trouble keeping her composure in the asylum. Like, <laughs> well, it's not the, the the losing control. It's the fact that she had the presence of mind to think about how she could better the situation, and then not being able to control herself. I mean, I guess I I understand the melting down part of it. It it's it, it's not. She felt not like, like she's, she's always like that. She does have stretches in the asylum where she says she behaves herself. Yeah, but then but I, something happens that. Yeah flips that switch and you know she gets that external stimulus Yeah, like if she had just acted like she didn't care about the book at all it might have it wouldn't have been such a big deal but the fact that she starts screaming and throwing herself at him you just destroyed all the work that you were trying but that's because she's desperately searching for something solid to cling on to because everything solid has been ripped away from her and this book represents to her at the time 
Mr. Locke because she thinks these are gifts from him. And it, and it represents that he still loves her despite the fact that he sent her to the asylum. And if she can have this book, if she can keep this book, A, it gives her I, something I to do to escape the hour dragons, which was a beautiful image, hmm. by the way. Yeah. Um, but but also it, it it's a, a solace to her that not everything has been ripped away from her. I get the motivation. I get like, yeah, yeah again, the, why it's just the, the, the way it flies against anything productive and I, she's not being rational. She's not meant to be rational. I get that too. It, it was just frustrating. Cause I don't know if that had been, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to put myself in that situation. And if someone had discovered something that I've been trying so hard to hide or so important to me, I feel like the last thing I would do would be make a huge deal out of it because that gives away the game. And I it's just, she's not playing on a, a rational level that I could insert myself with. And it just didn't vibe for, it didn't connect for me. I didn't really, I, I, I mean, I couldn't, I, I, I don't think I could imagine myself in that situation because again, like you said, I've never been put in. Yeah. I've yeah. never been led through that sort of a life. I don't know how I would react in that situation. I can't say I wouldn't be irrational. Yeah. You know? I, I, yeah, I, I just I'm yeah. trying to approach this as, as respectfully as possible and just trying to put myself like I generally do this as a reader. I'm trying to insert myself into character shoes. That's that's kind of how I manage to lose myself in the books, especially when I'm trying and I have a podcast like this and I'm having more and more trouble as we go on losing myself in that book and instead staying on the outside and, and, and really just observing the book as a whole. Um, so I'm trying to constantly make up for that by inserting myself into these character shoes and trying to lose myself in the book. And when somebody's making decisions that I would not be made, I'm pretty sure I would not be making, I think I would not be making. It's a little, I don't know. It's, it, it, it frustrates me a little bit. Okay. Um, but that, I mean, everything else about January, I have to speak about in our missile or miscellaneous later. So I am done with January for now. Although I, I imagine Let's you have a talk few talk about her father, about her father. Yeah. Um, so first off, in the introduction of the book, the the Ten Thousand Doors, yeah. Did you feel like this was supposed to be hidden? Who the author was? See, I wasn't entirely certain because I was listening to the audiobook and I I wasn't able to see the spelling of Yule Ian. How was it? Can you tell me how it's spelled? It's two words, Yule, okay. Y-U-L-E, and then E-N, I-A-N. Okay. Um, that would have been sufficiently uh, different enough that I've, I would have been like, yep, yeah, okay, she she was absolutely trying to make this and a then, revelation for uh, later. So January, as she introduces herself, scholar, it's S-C-A-L-L-E-R. Okay. And then Yule, E-N, scholar, of course, scholar is spelled S-C-H-O-L-A-R. Yeah. As the... You know, so the there's some clear intentional obfuscation there. Like, yeah. yeah, um, I, the moment I read that, I was like, okay, so this is her dad. Oh, see, I didn't have that moment for, uh, for me, it was, and it, I, I, it took me way too long to pick up on it. Um, it was when he was described, oh, how was he described? There was a color red described with him somewhere. I think honestly it was in like chapter four and I went, uh, Oh, you know what? I think I have the, the, the note on my other phone here. Sorry. I got a new phone in the middle of reading this book too. So I had to, tr I tried to transfer some note notes over. I actually think I have the one right here. Um, 
Oh yeah. Uh, okay. So it was chapter. Tw- uh, that doesn't say the chapter. Twenty three fifty three was the book on love. Oh yeah. Red edged dark of his skin after Yule uh, and Aid reunite. There was a that in chapter four. The chapter is called on love. They describe the red edged dark of his skin. And uh-huh. then I went. Oh, how have I been missing this? Maybe if Yule Ian was still spelled similar to Julian, I would have picked up on it at the beginning, but I wasn't able to see how it was spelled. So it took me until chapter four before I realized what it was. And that's yeah. how I felt stupid at that point. So I that was one thing I was going to ask you uh, about the audiobook was if they pronounced Julian as Julian or if they did Julian or Julian or whatever. No, very distinct. Okay. Very yeah. distinct. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the moment, um, the moment I saw Yule Ian Scholar, I was like, okay, yeah, this is her dad. And then, uh, when she meets him outside, I was like, okay, Adelaide is her mom. And, yeah, uh, it yeah. made that connection immediately. As soon as I realized Ju- like Julian was Julian, I was like, oh, okay, well then yeah. Aid, I know who Aid is. We haven't, she doesn't know who her mom is and she uh, inexplicably is lighter of skin than he is. Like, okay, this makes immediate sense. I was able to, be, I was able to make that connection with Aid immediately, but it took me longer than I was proud of, longer than I cared <laughs> to admit, <laughs> to pick up on the fact that, yeah, uh, Yule, or Jul- uh, yeah, Yule Ian Scholar was Julian. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, on, on the theme of names... Yes. Uh, how long did it take you to realize that Locke was the bad guy? What do you mean? I mean, he's, he was kind of a bad guy from the start because he was objectifying her and possessing her and exhibiting her well, so much from the start. You mean like behind the society and the closing of the doors and everything? Like the fact that this is all about doors and the dude's name is Locke. Oh, I thought it, it wasn't. It wasn't spelled L O C K E. It's spelled L O C K E, but. Locke. Oh. Locke is just such a common name that I don't think I would have even noticed it, honestly. That's actually... Cle- I, I I did not notice that Drew McCaffrey until you said that. And so there's your answer. How long did it take me? Until April 26th at 8.50 p.m. Eastern Time. <laughs> That's how long it took me. Okay, yeah. And that was definitely... I like uh, that. It was definitely something I was... Like, it was pinging on my radar from the start where I was like, <laughs> is this just a symbolic, like he represents the lock on the door and he's keeping her caged and, and, you know, uh, keeping her from going out and, and experiencing life or is this something more? And then of course, yes, it was something more. He's literally locking the doors across the worlds. And yeah, he he chose that name on purpose. Put it that way. Yeah, it's speaking really quickly again on Julian. I remember something else that we were talking about. Julian made me remember. Um, he had written in a, in total panic to his daughter, "Stay away from Arcadia" in all caps. No, didn't he? Was like when he was like writing his last, his final words as. So there in in the text, this is one thing that uh, yeah, you definitely didn't get. Okay. Um, in the, let me pull it up, uh, in, in the audio, um, yeah, you don't see the actual like layout of it. So it says, I am so sorry, God, so sorry. I am coming. Wait for me. And then there's a couple of lines break, you know, and then one line, all caps run January. And then another line break, italicized all caps, Arcadia. And then another line, you know, 
all caps, do not trust. And so to me, it's like he's saying, run, go to Arcadia. And then he's in the middle of do not trust. And then he never gets the chance to to write a name. Okay. In the audiobook, it just is like, run, do not trust, or run, Arcadia, do not trust. I'm like, is Arcadia a person? She's not supposed to trust Arcadia, right? And then they're going to immediately decide to go to the place as soon as they learn the name is Arcadia. And I went, what are you? What? That's another one of these things I think that just colored my opinion about January. I just didn't have the uh, on page context of the line yeah. breaks that would make that read slightly different. Mm-hmm. Again, people, I will say this again and again and again. <laughs> Do not read books for the first time over audiobook. And the fact that I am doing that and then trying to host a podcast talking about it at even something approaching an intellectual level, Drew McCaffrey, you are my savior. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I'm. Obviously not uh, not an audiobook listener myself. Yeah, I mean, I have I, no choice. I'm back to working 60-hour weeks now, unfortunately. <laughs> like, I prefer... I, I, I just... I enjoy reading with a physical book in my hands, but it simply is so much easier for me to read books uh, as ebooks for the podcast because it's easier mm. for me to write notes and highlight things and yes. find things yes. in the book when we're yes. discussing I remember it. I remember trying to convert so. you to e-readers like 10 years ago and even at that point it was still a little early but yeah I, I love e- I love my e-reader I still don't yeah it doesn't get as much use as I would like it to believe it or not because I've done so much listening to audiobooks at work that when I do end up reading a book or even my e- my ebook I just I end up falling asleep so quickly I am not used to to sitting down and not doing something as I'm enjoying a novel. And then if I sit down and all I'm doing is enjoying that novel or a story, I fall asleep. I, yeah. I need to multitask at this point. I've kind of ruined myself in that way. But, Drew, you are still here as the authentic one. <laughs> he who reads deeply. Thank you. So. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we're uh, sorry. We're, we're off track here. I keep doing that no, to us. Okay. Um, Julian, Julian uh, anything else about her father that you want to uh, discuss? Do you think he, do you think the story is trying to condemn him for, uh, for caring think more about his wife than his daughter? It's left open for the reader. I feel like you it's, it's left open for the reader to decide based on whether they want to accept this through January's filter, or if they can sympathize or empathize enough with a lost love to understand his motivations and and what he kind of did to January to try and find aid. I think I fall on the former. I think that once you have a child, that is your nut. Like, I mean, January growing up without a father was more damaging than growing up simply without a mother. And I was thinking of January, but I'm just, that's just me. Some people I imagine who have loved and lost in the way that Julian had would be able to empathize with him. And I'm not sure I can really make the call. I could just say what I, how I feel. And I I feel like he should have been there for her. So I feel like, yeah, it was condemning him, but yeah, I I feel my interpretation. There are some mixed messages. Uh, On the one hand, we have Julian putting forth this idea of true love, like capital T, capital mm-hmm. L, true love. And that he it's, names a ship, doesn't he? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And like, yeah. It, it's so much more than, than people think. And that it's, it's a compulsion. It's a, a, like a primal fact of life. And if you accept that premise, then of course he's going to do what he does. Uh, going out, leaving January behind and searching for Adelaide. 
mm-hmm. but it, you know, and so it it's a a complicated thing where we have a layered narrative because we have a book within a book, and the the two books are written by different people, and each one of them has a different perspective on on love and family, you know. So like January clearly feels hurt by this. Whereas yep. uh, Julian only only kind of comes around to January's uh, side of thinking at the what he perceives at, as the end of his life. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I was constantly aware that a lot of my opinion about the entire Julian situation in that, that moral question and his dilemma following could have I, I was prescient the entire time that it was being filtered through january and january was a pretty young girl for the vast majority she's still young when she ends this she still has a lot of growing up to do you know she hasn't finished becoming an adult there is a nice there is definitely a nice finishing beat at the end of the story which i did really appreciate yeah uh, but i i mean i was i was prescient enough like i said i was constantly a little skeptical um i was wondering like i what is true love like i've never felt a love like that that would make me want to uh, potentially abandon a child that I, even though I, I still don't have, you know, to appreciate to, to, to try and like he had, Julian had absolutely no indicator that she might've been alive. Did he, did, unless I missed that as well, but I still felt like he should have been there for her. I still, yeah. yeah I just still yeah, felt like I mean, it was a bit condemning. For my personal philosophy, I, I have a different uh, perspective on love. I, I, yeah. I don't really buy this idea of like, preordained fated true love soul mates you know like any of that like i i see love as as something different uh, i see compatibility but, as a spectrum you know yeah sure uh, like, just... like one of one of the things that um you know my wife and i kind of have embraced as a central philosophy in our marriage is that love is a choice that every day we choose to love each other hmm. and you know like even even when something goes wrong or you're upset, you remind yourself that you are choosing to love your spouse. You know, it's interesting. Um, but yeah. So like, I, I don't necessarily agree with Julian here uh, or Julian, uh, yeah. but, and I fall down on that same side, but for different reasons, I just, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I have nephews that I wouldn't want to abandon for, the, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, but yeah. So that's just but, me. Uh, to be honest, I don't really have like, a whole ton of points on characters. The vast majority of what I have here is, is on the writing style. (laughs) Can I bitch about the dog? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) This is my longest point. And it's so dumb. It's so dumb. I'm sorry, everybody for subjecting you to this, but Drew, you know, we get a little frustrated at times with authors deciding to take huge artistic liberties in their portrayal of animals, specifically with their superiority over humans. Okay. Yeah. Dogs are always better people than people. Horses are always smarter or more clever than people. Wolves are always stronger than people. Remember our Dresden episode on that <laughs> one, Drew? I, we have a main-ish character. He's a side character. Bad the dog. And as I suppose is obligatory, he gets his moment to shine or several moments to shine and represent the entirety of the canine species, apparently. For example, in chapter 13, as he travels through the threshold with January. And I have the quote here. I felt bad brushed past me sorry, brush past me, legs paddling ineffectually against the emptiness and scooped my arm around him. He kept his eyes fixed on me. It occurred to me that dogs are probably never lost in the in-between. 
because they always know precisely where they're going. I wrote down, okay, um, putting aside just how many dogs have apparently visited this in-between in this world, on what basis are we making the claim that dogs always know precisely where they're going? Is it because we watched a few too many heartwarming Disney movies as a child? Because I know I'm being a grouch yeah. right now. I know I'm being a buzzkill. I get it. But Harold's writing, again, I'm going to go back to this technical level. Her writing is technical, it, it, technically too good. I don't think she <laughs> needs these kinds of rectal conjurations. It just feels like a moment was reached where Harold had to decide, does this make sense? I don't know if it makes sense, but people aren't going to look too closely. It's a yay dogs moment. So people won't actually parse that information. Like an elephant never forgets, right? Bats are blind. Ostriches bury their heads in the sand. Snakes can be charmed with music. And a dog is never lost. I guess like, are we going to yeah. make the argument? Maybe that January simply doesn't know any better. I find that to be kind of like a lame excuse, but it, it's plausible. She, but I find that January is typically very forthright about what she doesn't know. And she takes every opportunity to explain how constantly lost she is geographically or socially. Like this was a cold hard statement from January. A dog is never lost. And it's just, it just, I was like, <laughs> what, what is this? And on the subject of bad, the dog, sorry, I can hear you laughing. I'm almost done. He's not a good dog. He's a terrible dog. And I know we're supposed to be endeared to him because he also has the inexplicable skill that every dog from every fantasy series yep. at, or movie that you could possibly think of has the perfect sense of morality for each and every human being around them or of each uh -huh. and every human being around them. We get it again. We finally meet Jane. Dogs are infinitely better judges of character than humans are. It's just such an obligatory beat that no writer ever seems to want to pass up. The dog knows what the people don't. It's like yeah. fantasy law. It's like, it's dogma. Oh my <laughs> the, God. The, <laughs> are you ready? But now you're wondering if I made that entire diatribe up just to be able to make a make play on words pun. for dogma. Yeah. No, I didn't. It just occurred to me, but I could not not include it. But this dog viciously attacks somebody, those around him on nothing but animal instinct. Yeah, okay. These people turn out to be evil, but that's irrelevant. It's not a good dog. Fuck them. My dog is a good dog. Each and every human being that Duke meets is the best friend he's ever had. Bad is a bad dog. I'm sorry. He is. I just needed to say that. Okay. Okay. Sorry, guys. I said there was going to, there's going to be a, yeah, a, I, a ranch like, later. I'm not like, like, I don't, you're not a dog I don't guy have anyway. anything against dogs, but yeah, I'm not like a insane dog fanatic, like, dog lover or anything. Oh, like, God. so generally speaking, I, I don't really care about, Nine characters in books. I'm a doggo guy, and so. I just get yeah. <laughs> it's a bad dog. But also, it's it's not like it's unrealistic. There are just bad dogs out there. Some dogs are just dickheads. There are. That is, you know, most true. of them are small. Most of them are like, you know. <laughs> but yeah. So, um, <laughs> all right. Uh, I I I'm going to absolutely end my notes on that idiotic note. I do have the. Uh, a miscellaneous slash favorite scene. I only actually have one favorite scene in this. You know, I think I have a second one, but I don't really have much else left to say about this book besides the fact that I loved it on a technical level. How about you? More characters or shall we just go into miscellaneous? Do you have miscellaneous? Let's scene? go into miscellaneous. Go ahead. Start us off because I've just got like one. Uh, okay. Let me, let me pull up my notes here. I might have already. Hmm. I just have a lot of like lines highlighted. Yeah. Uh, you know, world. I should have done more of that. Uh, worlds like houses have very particular smells. Man, do houses mm, have particular smells? Houses have particular smells. One hundred percent. Oh yeah. Um. Yeah. Like, there are just so many moments of beautiful imagery 
Once I half-roused to see the door propped open and Jane and Bad both sitting on the stoop, framed in summer moonlight like a pair of silver statues or guardian spirits. You know, like, just just beautiful imagery. Um, uh, oh, no, I'm, actually, I'm going to save that for favorite scenes. Um, save that for favorite scenes. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, so... Uh, one thing that stood out to me, I'm sure this is not a unique thing. I just, and in fact, I suspect this is a relic of the travelogue genre. I just haven't really read a whole lot of travelogues. Um, okay. But the the chapter headings in the 10,000 doors, um, you know, we have this love takes root and then an M dash love takes to the sea. M dash the simultaneously predictable and miraculous results of love. You know, so there's at the beginning of a chapter, there's a very brief overview of what happens or what is talked about in this chapter. Oh, um, early in this book, I was reminded like the, the book felt a lot like uh, a natural history of dragons by Marie Brennan. Uh, I've only read the first book of it, but I very much enjoyed it. Uh, hmm. It's about a young woman, you know, from a, an aristocratic society who has a, a an an uncouth interest in natural history and and uncouth. getting you, you know getting <laughs> How does one have an uncouth getting dirty <laughs> digging up okay the, okay there you go you know figuring out how animals and nature work um, and she's particularly fascinated by dragons and uh, and the chapters in that have this same format where it's like you know chapter one and then it'll be like i, I don't remember I, I don't have the book on me right now but uh it has this same like a brief thing but usually a list of three to four different events that happen in a chapter and they're separated by an m dash or a dash of some kind uh yeah. so like i i was already reminded of lady trent of natural history of dragons from the earliest pages of the story and then when we got to the Ten Thousand doors and we got this this uh chapter title heading format i was like oh my gosh of course you know yeah interesting yeah i love it when uh, inspiration is clear but it's 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 done so it's nailed and it's done well yeah i mean like i don't know if this was inspired by uh trent or anything like that oh, but fair fair yeah um let's see what, what else did i have um oh uh, one line that was uh, did really land for me uh very early on I pretended I was Ali Baba in the Cave of Wonders, <laughs> or a knight stalking through a dragon's horde, or just a girl with a father. Dude. Oof. I almost dropped an F-bomb right there. Yeah. That was a moment where I had reached up and paused my headphones on that line. There, I need to do this more often to write down which line it is where I, that impacts me enough to pause my headphones while I'm in the middle of a weld. And I remember that moment specifically. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and normally I have all kinds of these. I was full of these at the Dresden Files episodes, but I, just, I didn't actually write down any of these one-liners. And for somebody, I've been talking, you know, about her technical level, her technical talent. I just, oh man, I feel like I'm, hmm, I dropped the ball on this one. I didn't bring enough to the table that I did like about this book because there was that I did. There was that I did. What am I even saying at this point? There was a lot that I had. Um, let's see. And and uh, this one, I, I love this one. I sat on my thin mattress, watching the sun creep buttersoft across my pink and gold bedspread, 
frayed threads and cotton stuffing made shadows and spires across it, like the architecture of some foreign city. Now, um, I, I highlighted and I actually wrote a note on this, and I said I almost regret having us do this drinking out loud because this book feels like it shouldn't be rushed, that it should be enjoyed in a relaxed, languorous manner. Uh, and then because of some things, I was able to stretch it out a little longer uh, and enjoy it. And, but this one I in particular highlighted because the because of the use of simile here. And I want to make a direct comparison with Brandon Sanderson. Okay. Uh, this is one of the things that I don't like about Brandon Sanderson's prose uh, is his use of simile. He he will describe something and then use a you know like and then describe it in a in a in like in a similar but different term where like it's it doesn't the simile doesn't add anything. Here, the simile is describing a bedspread as if it's a city. You know, that is that is effective use of simile. But when you describe, like, I, I'm trying to think of an, an example off the top of my head, but of course I'm, I haven't read a Sanderson book in a couple of months. Um, but like, he, he tends to describe something and then describe it again mm. in and, and using that second description as a simile instead of making a comparison between two things that are dissimilar, but making them similar through the metaphor. Oh my goodness. Um, this is, this is obviously I am a big fan of Brandon Sanderson's books. I enjoy the stories he tells. I love the Cosmere, but this is one of those instances where yes, I think he does have a failing on a technical level in his prose. And this is an example of an author who does it really, really well. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Yeah. You yeah. absolutely have long since convinced me that I am due for another read of this book. A lot of time, I mean, we've, we've, we've said this before coming out of a, a book and I'm saying a book just didn't land for me. I'm not going to continue with this author. This book didn't land for me. I will reread this book. I do want to experience what this book can be like on a page and without being rushed. You know, yeah, yeah. Like know. this, this book feels like the kind of thing you want to take on a summer vacation and read by the pool, or, or you know, over the span of a couple. My of mom weeks. has a reading chair. I need to sit down yeah, in a exactly. reading chair and open this book. Yeah, you want to be comfortable and relaxed and just sink into it, uh, in into the book, into the prose, into the word choice, um. Uh, yeah, because it's it's honestly very impressive. Hmm. She is a far better writer than I am. <laughs> yeah, without a doubt on my part, I can't. I have. Yeah, I wish I could write at the technical level with the 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 beauty of prose that Alex E. Harrow can. Although I have to say, Mister Death for me was a perfect short story. Like, yeah, perfect. <laughs> yeah, that was I still really, appreciate. Really I still think of the two. I I much prefer her short fiction, but. I need to read this book again. So I will be doing that in the future. Uh, let's just get our favorite scenes out of the way. And unless you have anything else miscellaneous. Sure. Yeah. Let's, let's do favorite scenes. Okay. Um, uh, two you want to go first? Forget, yeah. I've got I won't, actually only two. Oh, then <laughs> I'll I go first. Okay. Uh, and uh, 
I want to kind of qualify this because I actually had a really hard time coming up with favorite scenes because like I said, it wasn't really like the plot or the events of the story that I loved. It was the language. And, and so the scenes in general that I have are more images imprinted in my mind. Uh, And, and my number three was this image of, the hour dragons when she is locked away. Let me see if I can find it. Yeah. Um, time went strange. The hour dragons stalked and circled. I heard their belly scales susurrating against the tile in my sleep. Like, whoo, <laughs> <Damn, Harrow. laughs> like that yeah. is excellent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm 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 forgetting a lot of the circumstance around one of my favorite scenes, which is weird because it's like, how can it be your favorite scene? Because I wrote down a note talking about how great it was, but I just gave myself a timestamp. It was in chapter nine, I believe, the burning door. It's at it was at 46 minutes in on the audiobook. I just wrote great fucking writing. Jane supposedly dying. So, can you remind me what exactly happened there around Jane having this moment of like? like sacrifice because i remember being blown away by the character of jane halfway through this book and going that was really cool but i just it was when halfmire was chasing them like did she, um, she try to 1v1 him when when she there was a scene on arcadia when jane goes for her gun but she doesn't have her gun um is and and ilvain stabs ilvain. her is that what you're thinking of that might have been it that might have been it. I think it was a beauty of prose moment, though, in around okay. Jane making our, our not making this decision, but just being screwed like this. That was, uh, uh, that was big. I think it was the one with Ilvain. Yeah. Okay. It was chapter nine, the burning door, and it was forty six minutes into the yes. book. Yeah, so. that's, that was on our. Uh, yeah, the burning door is referring to uh, Ilvain burning you, the door right, of the White right. House. Yeah. Duh. What am I saying here? Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Um, second right, favorite. So my second favorite is uh, Hava Meyer's visit to the asylum. Oh, uh, the, man. Like, you you have this unsettling feeling. You're like, this ain't right. Like, obviously, he lies. He tells them that he's Locke to get access. But then, as it goes on and, and you start realizing, you know, oh, that was perfectly creepy. Yeah. 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 That was a powerful one. And icky. And everything it should have been. I feel like, like Harrow nailed the feeling that she was going for there and instilling a feeling of, Oh, dawning horror in the reader there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, your favorite, my favorite scene was this, uh, champagne driven outburst at Mr. Locke's party (laughs) towards the society members in general, even though I don't really connect with our main character. January was undeniably spitting some facts right there. She was. Yeah. 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 So, Yep. That was an entertaining scene. <laughs> what about yours? Your favorite scene? Uh, in the chapter on loss. She looked up just as we crossed into the blackness and grinned her crooked, wild grin at the two of us. That smile, a white gold smear against the mist, still hangs like a painted portrait before my eyes. Again, excellent use of simile. Mm-hmm. It marks the last moment the world was whole. The last moment of our brief, fragile family. The last moment I saw Adelaide Larson. 
Yeah. She can deliver a punch. Harold can. Yes. Words. <laughs> she can punch you right in the gut with a pen. It really is spectacular. Mm-hmm. Um, I there's, there's this is not my like I, I give my favorite scene already, but there's one thing I'd forgotten to mention, and we'll yeah. use it as my missing third favorite scene that I hadn't mentioned here. Because as I mentioned, I had gone through and restarted the book after I finished it, and I only got like two three hours in. But there is a lot that I picked up on on a second read that I wouldn't have picked up on on a first read, in in particular in terms of description. There was a moment in chapter two when she goes to London with Locke and he describes Uh the city as, and I quote a human zoo, which on a first read, you're like, Oh, this is a classist or elitist prick saying something like this on a second read. You realize you realize that he's not human to him. This is literally a zoo. Uh, Yes. And that description comes (laughs) back when she goes to Arcadia and she sees like the, just the motley assortment of people in the city. And she again, thinks back to that description and yeah and you know Locke would describe it as a human zoo yeah mm. um and also our first description of Havemire contains the word creature yeah nice nice it did i was like oh that was tasty on a second read too again on a technical level harrow is brilliant she's brilliant i would she's 100 somebody i would ask writing advice from I didn't like the book. It didn't land for me, but that was a, it was for all entirely subjective reasons. Um, and I do want to reread this book. So, yeah. 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 Okay. Well, I think that brings us to the end of our discussion of the book, but yeah. of course we have the final draft. We do. Uh, what are you drinking, Rob? <laughs> I'm drinking something so dumb. I am still continuing my sober streak. I actually just had my formal interview and my medical examination today for the forces. So I went a month without drinking. And I'm like on that month right now. I'm still continuing it. So today I've just been drinking <laughs> this lame note brand that we have up here called President's Choice. It's a flavored water. It's peach mist. It's a zero calorie peach flavored non-sweetened drink or sweetened, but artificially sweetened drink. And it's okay. I like the peach version. It's very refreshing. Um, but the millennial part of me kind of hurts to see the plastic that they use for such a small serving. Um, <laughs> but eh. There it is. I recycle. I'm drinking peach flavored, zero calorie water. <laughs> How about you? Okay. Well, uh, like you, I am still sober. Uh, Sweet. So I'm just drinking Good choice. Some water. But Sweet. Lauren is back. And, Lauren's uh, being the rebel again for us. She's taking up that beer. Yeah. She's taking yeah. one for the team. Let's let's hear about the the beer and the beer style you're drinking. Okay, so I'm a little excited. I'm gonna start with um, when I poured this out. I could see. That it is extremely dark. Yeah, I'm gonna hold this up to the camera for you, Rob. Like, look at Wait, the. Whoa. You see. I think I just saw the room get darker when you lifted that up. But like, look at the sediment on the glass. Oh my God. Like, yeah. So it's it's kind of like it looks like a uh, chocolate milk. It looks like poorly mixed chocolate milk. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. the reason why that is is because this one is heavily adjuncted, and by adjuncted, I mean like some of those uh, less traditional ingredients that we add for flavor. So this one's got quite a few of them. Okay. Yeah, it does. <laughs> so it, it does have milk sugar. So it is a milk stout. It's lactose. Yes. Mm-hmm. Cool. And um, that is non-fermentable. So you can add that in at any stage. And Wait, hold on. N- so you, 
sorry, lactose is non-fermentable, you can absolutely ferment it. That's what causes lactose intolerance, isn't it? When it ferments the in your yeast, gut? The ah. yeast in beer cannot ferment it. Oh. Oh, got you, got you. Okay, okay. Yeah, unless sorry, you Sorry, continue. I just... No, yeah, no, I, I, I got just... <laughs> sorry, I just learned this in biology, so I just went straight against something I had learned. I went, wait, what? Finally, I got something to say about beer, so I was really excited. Sorry, continue, Lauren. Yeah, so to for the yeast to be able to consume it, you would have to break down those sugars because this is a more complex sugar. Yeah. But also, you can add this at any time in the brewing process. So you can add it, like, right before you bottle, or you can add it during the boil, or you can add it when you add the yeast during fermentation. It's... It just depends on what you're looking for. But awesome. the reason why it's put in there is because it adds some body to the beer because it's non-fermentable and it adds some sweetness. Yeah. But traditionally, um, so in the UK, it was first used, people were adding milk to their beer, uh, trying to be healthy. <laughs> oh god <laughs> so totally people doing people things there's one point in history where the english are adding all kinds of things to beer to try and make it healthy so <laughs> some of them worked on a flavor level i imagine yeah I, and this makes total sense to me because they add milk to their tea too so why That's why weird. wouldn't they add it to their beer um yeah. So yeah, it's got that, but it's also got Madagascar vanilla, um, which I learned means that it's uh, got more water content and it's like fruitier type of vanilla. Oh, okay. They also added coconut, ancho chilies, oh. cocoa oh. nibs, oh. and coffee. You had me until chilies. <laughs> Everything except for the chilies. What the? F <laughs> yeah, so so there's a little spice to this one. Uh, but it's you know not overpowering. It's pretty, pretty nice. Um, like it's a it's a background spice where you you get that spicy note and then it disappears. And you, I think part of that's because of the milk sugar. Absolutely right about that. I've been doing a lot more Asian inspired cooking, uh, for like Indonesian fried rice and Japanese like yaki udon. They use a lot of chilies for there, and I've come to be able to distinguish a chili from other peppers and i know exactly what you mean like a chili is not an obnoxiously flavored pepper it's more of a sensation than it is a flavor and i can imagine that works really well um as an adjunct am, am i using that term correctly yes, yes oh look at me learning on the inking out loud <laughs> podcast cool i'm learning stuff from lauren but uh, i can see that working actually now that i have the proper context for what a chili is since i've been cooking so much with chilies yeah so i i have watched the way that you add all these adjuncts particularly i'm talking about like the they probably use whole coffee beans and the coconut yeah, and likely the favorite. chilies too um you put them in this uh i guess we call it an adjunct vessel so it's this giant vessel um with slits in it so you can filter the beer out but you're trying to like steep all the stuff in the beer um, and you you mix it in there, but it's got like those false bottoms, so you can still pull the beer out without pulling all the other ingredients and, yeah. and like clogging a hose or a line. 
amazing. That's amazing. There's genuine science in this. That's unbelievable. And it is super messy. (laughs) I I imagine. I imagine it's super smelly too. Oh, it smells great. Yeah. It smells so good. (laughs) Yeah. So the beer itself, uh, this is from Anchorage Brewing Company. In Alaska? Uh, yes, indeed. <laughs> I got a buddy who just landed in Alaska earlier today. I want to see if he's near uh, Anchorage. Uh, yeah, uh, they are as far as barrel aged, you know, strong ales. Uh, they are one of the best in America. They they do not mess around. This beer is fifteen percent ABV. <laughs> um, and and I've actually brought this one on Inking Out Loud before. Uh, I nice. think for Cytonic. <gasps> uh, that this beer is called the Explorer. Oh, yeah. You would have definitely brought it on for t- but man. Yeah. Yeah, but, the uh, Explorer. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Could, any number of characters. Uh, That's a very versatile book. beer. Yeah. There's, yeah. A, there's also a little, like, like spot on it where it says, is it safe? Yeah. And it's got, like, a skeleton holding what I think is... It's like a stylized, dynamite? like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. But, they always have uh, Anchorage. Always has some crazy um, artwork, label artwork. I think it's a flare that he's holding. Oh, I yeah. want it to be dynamite. Dope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Open to interpretation. So, so. Uh, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. Sweet. Uh, this has been episode one hundred sixty-seven of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Uh, next up, we're going to be heading back to the Rune Lords. We're going to be doing the first half of the Wormling Horde. And I just realized I uh, forgot to look up which chapter we're going to read till. Mm. Um, it'll be around 50% of the way through the book. Yeah. So yeah. if you want to read along, uh, to check in on Facebook or, or uh, Discord, because I'll be posting uh, at the beginning of May, I'll be posting our up upcoming schedule and I'll note which chapters we're reading there. Um, yeah, as always, if you want to support the show, check us out on Patreon, inking out loud. Uh, as Rob said at the top, all sorts of fun stuff there, original stories by the two of us, you know, perks like our newsletter, bonus episodes. Uh, you can, uh, what do you, what, what do you say, Rob? How'd you put it? You can you can force us to read a book. Yeah, um, <laughs> waterboard us with a book. I don't know. Yeah, to... <laughs> yeah. There you go. Um, so yeah, I have been your host Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my co-host Rob Santos, right here, and our beer expert Lauren McCaffrey. Heck yeah. oh, Sorry, guys, my, I just started playing the Wormling Horde there, and uh, Lauren has her own podcast that you can catch her on. Lauren, what, tell us a little about that podcast, real quick. So it's called The Novice's Guide to Beer Styles. Um, at the moment, I'm doing a style-by-style go-through, including the history and how it's brewed. Um, but I'll also probably do a couple 101s as well, because I've realized some people uh, would benefit from a quick 101 on what, what beer is. Oh, man. That's something that I'm going to download as soon as it's out. <laughs> I guarantee yeah. that. I need more stuff to listen to at work anyway. I'm blasting through these books in like a day at this point. So, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on and lending the uh, the expertise at the moment. Oh, it was super fun. Super fun to look some of this up. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. That's all for episode 167. 
Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye.